On today's episode, we're talking privacy innovations on the Bitcoin blockchain with an independent developer who's been focused on that problem for some time. My name is Adam B. Levine, and for today's session, I'm joined by the other hosts, Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello, everyone. Jonathan Mohan is out this week. Our special guest for this episode is Chris Belcher, an independent developer who notably invented Join Market and Electrum Personal Server. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Hello there. Thanks for having me. So before we get into it, we'll start with the basics. Permissionless blockchains are necessarily public, transparent, and pseudonymous. That's another way of saying that anyone can look at them without any sort of approval or credentials, which makes them public. You can see everything that's ever happened, which makes them transparent. And while you can track what individual identities do, you can't see who those identities tie back to in real life, which makes them pseudonymous. But blockchains are notably not anonymous. It's kind of a wonky point, but one worth emphasizing. Anonymous in this context means that there's no continuous identity. So if Andreas and I were talking on a cooking forum that lets us post anonymously, if we were exchanging messages on a topic and then did so from one week to the next, we wouldn't actually know that we'd spoken before. That's not how most forums work, though. Most forums and most things on the internet are pseudonymous. And while Andreas might not know he's talking to me, Adam, he'd see my username, my pseudonymous identity, BlockChef. And even though he doesn't know that's my real name, he'd be able to figure out that he had talked to BlockChef before. So in Bitcoin, the situation is much the same. Instead of calling myself BlockChef on a recipe forum, in Bitcoin, I'm known by my Bitcoin addresses. And while I might have a lot of Bitcoin addresses, a lot of these pseudonymous identities, this creates opportunities where privacy can start to unwind in a way that sometimes is worse than you might think. For years, this has been known to be a problem, known to be sort of just an intractable part of the way that cryptocurrency and transparent public blockchains work. But there have been a lot of ideas and a lot of inventions which have sort of come out and which are still many in development now, which are trying to solve this problem, which brings us to today's guest. So Chris, with that set up, did I get anything wrong? And talk to me about how you're thinking about privacy these days. No, I think you've explained that very well. So a concrete example, I'd say, is people's Bitcoin addresses are their pseudonymous identities. It's where their coins are on. And a common problem that people do is address reuse. That's where they use the same address again and again and again. In this analogy, that's like someone using the same pseudonymous name again and again and again. And using a new address for each payment and then never using it again is a bit like making a new pseudonymous name and then discarding it once you're done with it and just using another one. So in that circumstance, it's not anonymous, but it's almost the same as anonymous because there's no reuse between the identities. It's not anonymous, but it's pretty darn close. Yeah, so it's pseudonymous where if used correctly, there's a new pseudonymous identity every time. However, the identities are linked together. So on the blockchain, you see Bitcoins flowing from one address to another. So it's not like the identities are completely new. They're linked to the other ones previously. As well as information from the blockchain, there's also leaks based on things like the person's IP address, or maybe they've posted this address on a public forum somewhere. So there's other links that come in as well. What's kind of the scary scenario where privacy is broken? And like, is it for an individual it becomes scary? Or is it like a kind of meta threat that's really affecting the whole network when you're talking about privacy and sort of like address reuse, things like that? In a worst case scenario, what's the thing that happens? All of the above, essentially. So one example is if you're a regular user and you want to use Bitcoin to buy some coffee, a nightmare scenario is you go to the coffee shop and buy a cup of coffee and the person serving you can see your whole financial history. So they can see your income and they can see all the other spends you make and whether you donate to certain charities or anything like that. It's also a problem if you're a business because that means 
if your entire income and transactions are public, your competitors could see how much you're paying your staff, how much you pay for supplies and all that kind of thing, where you allocate your resources. And for the network as a whole, there is actually a related problem of fungibility, which is related to privacy. So that's where fungibility is a necessary property of money. So we have properties like divisibility, portability, durability, and fungibility is just one of those. You need this to be good money. And it's the property that every unit is the same as every other unit. That means a good can be used as money because it means it can be accepted. For example, banknotes, you know, if you get paid with $5 or €5, Euros, it's the same as €5 Euros in general, rather than this particular banknote having some special thing you need to check. So the nightmare scenario there is that every time someone accepted Bitcoin, they'd have to actually look up to some kind of database, to some kind of checklist, check that these particular coins they're receiving were not, for example, banned by some institution or some government or something. And if that were to happen, because these blacklists, these kind of lookup tables would be centralized, it would destroy the decentralization property of Bitcoin. But Chris, just being a little bit facetious and playful here, what's the problem with that? Like, they're just looking at your financial history. What can anyone really do about that? And if you can see everyone else's financial history, too, isn't that only fair? Well, I suppose I could turn it back to you. Could I, Stephanie, see your financial history, please? (laughs) There's loads of reasons why you wouldn't want to share that kind of thing. And going back to the examples I said of the merchant, of the business who runs a business and uses Bitcoin, their privacy is an important part of their business because they need to keep secret, for example, how much they pay for their suppliers, or they need to keep secret other things that they do. And that's an important for a healthy economy. There's good reasons to hide things from the public or from your competitors. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out too, that There already is like kind of an uneven playing field as far as privacy goes. If you're willing to work for it, you can have a greater degree of financial privacy. And if you don't work for it or you don't know how to, or you don't think that's important, then you're going to be at a disadvantage compared to people who have greater privacy. Even beyond the commercial considerations, I think the even greater consideration is the fact that without privacy in your financial affairs, you can be easily targeted for your political associations and your political expression, which, given the fact that more than 55% of the world's population live under authoritarian or corrupt regimes, means that it is very, very easy to suppress the fundamental mechanisms of democracy, representation, political expression, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of assembly, etc., simply by violating privacy and then imposing punitive measures as retribution for political expression. And we've seen this happen again and again. In fact, that is the main theme of history, a lack of those freedoms. And increasingly, especially since the 70s, where we have more electronic forms of payments, financial transactions have been used repeatedly to impose consequences for people expressing political views. I just remember reading in the Hong Kong protests a couple of months ago that people there were warned to use cash when buying public transport tickets to go to the protest. Otherwise, they'd be punished after the fact. So yeah, privacy is as well important for censorship resistance as well, or you will be punished after the fact. My favorite example is the fact that what most people don't know, North Korea holds elections on a regular basis and people are free to cast their ballots in very much the same way as we do in Western countries. There's only one kind of tiny difference. 
And that is that you have to show your ballot to the election officials before casting it. That's all. That's the only difference between their elections and ours. And that difference is the difference between democracy and totalitarianism, that removal of privacy. And of course, it doesn't have to wait until it happens at the ballot box. Sophisticated totalitarian regimes will ensure that any political dissent, opposition, or even expression is suppressed long before elections simply through controlling financial repercussions. It's a good example of such a tiny thing can have huge consequences. So this is not a new problem. But in the early days of cryptocurrency, in the early days of Bitcoin, there were many ways that you could acquire Bitcoin and that you could acquire these sorts of tokens that didn't necessarily create a strong linkage between where your Bitcoin are being sent from and your real world identity. At least in the Western world today, if you try and acquire Bitcoin for the first time, you don't have any cryptocurrency going in. The situation is very different. There are more options available. Those options are easier, but pretty universally, they all require what's known as AML KYC or anti-money laundering, know your customer practices, which basically means that anybody who's going to sell you Bitcoin, be it Coinbase or be it, you know, Cash App or any of these places, they want to know exactly who you are. And then we've seen that at least in some circumstances, they track that data. And when you send your tokens out of their platform, and to an address that maybe you control, maybe you don't, they track that. And they look and they try to analyze and see what you're doing, right? Are you doing something that might be illegal or doing something maybe that's not even illegal, but that just is kind of questionable and that puts you into a higher risk category? Because all of these businesses are that. They're businesses and they're trying to manage their risk in compliance with sort of the regulations of whatever country they're operating out of. It's a bit worse than that. I think this is a very important point to make, which is that It's not the exchanges that are doing this directly. Instead, what's happened is an entire industry has sprung up, very much as it has in traditional finance, of surveillance companies. And these surveillance companies that have ties with organizations like Palantir and other surveillance and intelligence companies that exist in the traditional finance, what they do is they offer anti-money laundering and customer scoring. But that comes in the form of a devil's deal. And the devil's deal is this. In order to get a transaction scored, you have to provide the identifiers on all transactions. So if an exchange wants to do scoring for their customers, they have to feed all transactions to these surveillance companies. And in return, the surveillance companies will provide a score for each one of these transactions. Now, What this does is it gives the exchanges an easy out on liability because they can point to the surveillance company and say, we're doing our due diligence, they're doing the scoring. But what it also does is it means that it's not just one exchange because then it would be a silo. Instead, a single surveillance company is aggregating identifiers and transaction flows from dozens and dozens of exchanges, and they become kind of like a fusion center of privacy-violating surveillance. And of course, that information can then easily be taken or leaked to intelligence agencies, which are almost certainly tapping into this data, as well as the world's most horrific, dictatorial, and oppressive regimes that will comfortably buy these things. And the surveillance companies say nice platitudes, like, we wouldn't sell it to the worst dictators. And you just have to start asking follow-up questions. Oh, okay. 
Does that include Saudi Arabia? What about, you know, and you just keep going down the list. And of course they will. And if they don't sell it, they'll accidentally leak it or it will be given to a U.S. intelligence fusion center that will happily hand it over to some of these, quote, allies, unquote. So the very same information that's used to fulfill this kind of bourgeois need for safety by AML laws in the Western countries is being then fed through the back door to suppress political dissent all across the world and to prop up dictators. That's an excellent point. I think the only other thing worth mentioning there is that this is something that's being done by private companies, but the market wouldn't exist for it if the, as you say, bourgeois requirement wasn't put onto companies that were trying to operate as exchanges, trying to operate as marketplaces for these things. And again, one of the kind of early decentralized Craigslist-like hubs was local bitcoins. And for a very long time, that was one way that you could legally, at least in theory, acquire Bitcoin without needing to go through a full KYC process and expose your identity. You just would have to meet someone in person and do the deal kind of hand-to-hand in a way that is legal for anyone to do. But even they added AML KYC, again, as they got to be bigger and as it became obviously more of a business than it was at the start when really it was, you know, a hub. It was a meeting place, almost a public space. So, I mean, like, it's to a certain extent the professionalization of the businesses that are doing this on the one side, and then on the other side, it's the governments that have now started really taking it seriously. That's created the opportunity for companies like the ones you mentioned to go out and effectively have all of this information and this whole base of customers who need their services, which then creates this sort of nexus of information that is very valuable to, again, some of the worst actors out there. So I would say, just to be clear, it's everybody's fault. It's everybody's fault, but it's also not simply a matter of policy. It is a matter of policy that through successful outsourcing generates incredible profits for shareholders. I mean, are we going to criticize that? Yes, I am going to criticize the fact that surveillance capitalism leads to fantastic profits for shareholders for the violation of human rights on a massive scale all across the planet that results in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Yes, I will criticize that. Which I think brings us back to Bitcoin and privacy on the Bitcoin blockchain and why increasingly solutions that allow you to break the linkages that are created by exactly this type of information becomes increasingly relevant, not just to people who are doing things that they want to hide, but literally to everyone as it speaks to the integrity of the network as a whole and the ability to have not secrets, but just privacy, right? Privacy is this sort of basic concept that in the rush to safety can really kind of be thrown under the bus. So Chris, kind of pivoting back to you, talk to us about how you feel about privacy or, you know, any things that you think we got wrong on it or where you have kind of different ways of thinking about it. No, I completely agree with all those things. And it's an important point, like probably for the rest of this podcast, we'll talk about the technology I'm creating. But this KYC AML standard that we have, if all money coming into and out of Bitcoin went through this KYC procedure, there'd be no privacy, regardless of what the underlying technology was. So it's actually an important point that for Bitcoin to be private, people have to actually use it as money for just things every day, buying coffee and that kind of thing, uh, you know, buying domain names or something. So if they only ever transact between a couple of exchanges and all those exchanges have their KYC information, then there's no privacy because the people who control the KYC information will see everything that's happening all the way through. So I like that we talked about the whole industry that's built up around KYC AML at the beginning of the show, because this is massively valuable, right, to certain people who are in the key positions to control the data and sell it. And 
if there's anything that can be done to make this data less valuable or less good, then it would hurt their bottom line, but it would improve privacy in general, right? And so certain technologies can potentially accomplish that to confuse the validity of this massive amount of data in the blockchain surveillance industry. Let's talk a bit about the heuristics. I think that's a great starting point for the next part of the discussion, which is that a lot of what's being done in order to associate transactions is not a matter of certainty. These pseudonyms have to be associated. One of the key features of Bitcoin and Bitcoin transactions, of course, is that a transaction is not simply a check, which is a from to with a single input and a single output. Instead, it's a structure that involves potentially multiple inputs and multiple outputs. All of the inputs may come from a single person or they may come from multiple people. And the outputs may go to multiple people and they may also involve change transactions. Now, most Bitcoin transactions are very simple. They involve one or two inputs and two outputs, one of which is a payment, one of which is change. And the fundamental mechanism these surveillance companies use is a statistical analysis and correlation analysis, a heuristic mechanism of deciding to a certain degree of probability that inputs signed in a transaction belong to the same person and that some of the outputs are payments versus some are change. These statistical analysis things are not 100%, of course. They say, you know, there's an 80% probability that these addresses are owned by the same person. And it's about breaking this statistical analysis, I think, where most of the advances have been made in terms of the privacy and strengthening of the pseudonymity of Bitcoin systems. Those heuristics or assumptions, they're essentially saying that when the surveiller sees multiple interpretations of a transaction, they'll just choose one, which they think the most likely one is. And for the other ones, they'll just ignore them. So one way to restore privacy is to purposely break those heuristics. So for example, the heuristic Andreas talked about of if there's multiple inputs to a transaction, then the surveiller will assume that all of those inputs are controlled by the same person. And breaking that heuristic is essentially the definition of coin join. It's where multiple people come together to create one transaction between them with all their inputs being shared in this transaction. And then that breaks the heuristic. So any surveiller who was surveilling based on this heuristic would slowly find it broken. Another heuristic that's maybe a bit more basic, it's a little bit almost obvious that it's often forgotten, is that if you see a transaction with money going from A to B, then the ownership actually went from A to B. And there's been ideas for how to actually break that, that you can have the money end up in a completely different address like Zed. Okay, so we're talking about heuristics and we're talking about inputs. And I think that, again, we're getting just a little bit technical for some of the audience. So I want to kind of walk it back for a second and use what I think is going to be an imperfect analogy here. But when I think of like a coin join transaction or something like that, really what I'm thinking about, it's kind of like a privacy machine, right? It's like if you can analogize that to like a real world vending machine, then basically if I wanted to send you know cash to someone, then I could either give it to someone in real life, right? Or just transfer through my bank account. Or I could use this machine that would allow me and many other people to walk up to it, insert our cash, and then walk away from it. And then at a later point in time, the person who I want to send the money to walks up to it, and they get the cash back that I intended to send them. But the connection between the specific dollar bills that I was trying to send from one person to another, or the bank transfer in another case, would not be as obvious. It would be obfuscated because many, many people are using the same machine for this function. And it would be even better if all of that was paid out at the same time. Did that work at all? 
Adam, it did work. But I think when we use technical analogies, then the machine itself takes on this almost nefarious role and people start associating these activities with money laundering. And what I want to do is provide a much simpler analogy that people can immediately understand that doesn't have those negative connotations because we use that degree of privacy in our daily lives all the time and we don't think twice about it being somewhat nefarious. So when you're sitting at your Sunday service in church and the priest passes a basket and as it goes from row to row, People put a small amount of cash in the basket and that amount of cash accumulates. And then the priest takes that cash and then uses it to fund, let's say, charitable causes like a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter or paying the salaries of people. Essentially, what you have there is the basket represents a transaction that has lots of inputs and lots of outputs. And there's nothing nefarious going on. And yet we do that all the time. The same thing that you would consider when you see a musician in the subway system playing music and they have a bowl in front of them and people are dropping money into their guitar case or whatever. So we do coin join all the time in real life. We do it in the tip jar of our coffee shop. We do it in various forms when we're making donations. We also do it In the other mechanism that Chris talked about, the A to B to Z mechanism, for example, we use similar techniques in Bitcoin as we do when we go to a gas station and we need to pay a certain amount, but we don't want to get like loose change as our change. Let's say that we have a bill that's for $17 and instead of paying $20 and getting $3 change, we might pay $22. And that way we get a fiver instead of a bunch of coins, right? And that technique is the kind of pay join technique that's used in Bitcoin. So we naturally do these things with cash and never think twice that what we're doing is structuring transactions or money laundering or whatever. But these kinds of things actually provide a great deal of the privacy we have in daily life and in the use of cash, which for thousands of years has given us almost impenetrable anonymity and privacy without destroying civilization as we know it. After the break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the specific privacy texts that Chris is working on and some of the other ones as well. I think we're going to talk about pay join, pay swap, and a few other things. So be back in a second. All right. So, Chris, I think we've had a good discussion to this point talking about privacy in more general terms. I'd like to kind of zoom in on some of the technology. I don't particularly care where we start. Kind of what's the most interesting privacy tech out there, whether you're working on it or not? Let's just start there. Okay. So from my point of view, it's CoinSwap, which is what I've been working on for the last few months. I think that's really interesting because the privacy technologies we've had up till now have been very visible. So I've heard the analogy that using equal output coin joins, which exist in join markets, Wasabi or Samurai Wallet, that they're equivalent to getting privacy by wearing a hockey mask or like going into a shopping mall wearing a hockey mask. <laughs> so yeah, people won't see your face, but they'll instantly know that something quite unusual is going on here. So coin swap and any kind of privacy technique which is invisible, where these privacy transactions look the same as any other regular transactions, they're I think very interesting and very useful because firstly, they mean you have 
a much bigger crowd of people to hide in. You have much more privacy because people who aren't looking for privacy will be confused with you as well. And secondly, it means people who aren't looking for privacy will still have their privacy improved because your transactions look just like theirs. So going back to those heuristics earlier, your transactions will break some of these heuristics and that will benefit people even who don't use them because the surveillance companies won't be able to rely on those heuristics anymore. I think this is a good point to introduce a term that you will hear a lot if you're reading about privacy in the context of cryptocurrency, and that is the term anonymity set. So a big effort here is the crowd that you are blending in. I wouldn't say hiding because you're not hiding. You're just blending in. So when you're blending with a crowd, the size of that crowd determines your degree of privacy. If it's a very big crowd, then you have a very high degree of privacy, not just you, but also the rest of the crowd has a high degree of privacy. So that's what's called the anonymity set. If your transactions look like the transactions of, you know, thousands and thousands of other transactions that have gone into the recent blocks, that's the anonymity set. If you go into a join market or Wasabi coin join or something like that, and your transactions look like these hundred inputs of the same size to hundred outputs of the same size, that immediately says what it is. It's the hockey mask analogy that Chris used. And your anonymity set is much smaller because there aren't that many of those types of transactions. PayJoin is another privacy technique. It also has this property that it's invisible, that PayJoin transactions look the same as regular transactions in many ways. PayJoin, it's combining a payment with a coin join. So it's where, for example, a customer wants to pay a merchant and they together agree to create one transaction which will transfer money from the customer to the merchant but we'll also break this common input ownership heuristic. So the inputs to this transaction, some of them will be owned by the merchant and some of them will be owned by the customer. So the effect of this is that if any surveillance company is trying to do large-scale surveillance on the blockchain, these pay-join transactions will break the heuristic, this common input ownership heuristic. So let's say Chris goes to Adam's shop and Chris needs to pay $10 to Adam. So what happens is instead of Chris just paying $10 to Adam and getting change, Adam throws in $5 into Chris's pocket, but with the understanding that Chris is going to pay $15 instead. So if you look at the transaction, there's a tenor and a five on the counter, and it looks like those are going to Adam. But what isn't immediately obvious is that the fiver was actually Adam's. And of course, if that was a fiver that Adam previously received from another customer, now the algorithms get really confused. So this is literally a coin join transaction that has an additional payment associated with it, which basically makes it so that the amount that gets paid in versus the amount that gets paid out looks different, which means that you can no longer just simply say, all right, well, it's going into this privacy or mixer service or whatever, but what comes out the other side is exactly the same. So it's pretty actually easy to decode. This breaks the ability to decode that easily. Yeah, that's right. So the other kind of coin join in use today is called equal output coin joins. And they're, as was mentioned before, they're very obvious to look at because the outputs of these transactions, there's many of them, there's a large number of them, and many of them have exactly the same output amount. It's a very obvious signature out there that's easy to find. Well, with pain join, that doesn't happen because in, in Andreas's example, the transaction would look like five and 10 coming in as inputs and 15 coming in as outputs. So then there's no equal output or anything like that happening 
in this, which makes them invisible. And if someone was looking at your store, Adam, and they were looking at all of the items and thinking, I wonder what Chris bought. Let's see what costs $15. They've completely missed the mark because, of course, what Chris bought costs $10. The other five you pitched into yourself. And rather than a coin join that happens through a third party or something like that, this is something that happens directly between Chris's wallet and your merchant store, Adam, so that when Chris goes to check out, instead of sending a finalized transaction, Chris sends a partially signed transaction, and you just stick another input in it before broadcasting it. Okay, so that explains why, as the merchant, I'm actually pitching the money in myself rather than Chris sending $15 to the privacy tech but then having $10 go out to me to actually pay me and $5 come back to him, maybe to an address. Like that's better in some ways because there isn't the ability to correlate the payment going in versus the payment coming out. But it's not better in that you could still go to the merchant store and figure out what was purchased and then unwind it kind of from that side. Is that the thinking behind why it's the recipient who chips in kind of the privacy portion? Well, that's part of it. But I think the other thing to realize is that you as a merchant, Adam, in this particular case, would be basically having every customer take change from the tip jar from the previous customer so that every one of the payments that you receive has chained together and obfuscated the ownership of all of your customers' inputs. Okay. And so... Pulling back to kind of the technology for a second, you said this is something that our wallets would basically negotiate automatically. So this is almost a new type of transaction. Does it require a new type of wallet? Yeah, it could be built into existing wallets without too much difficulty. There's a few of them that already do that. What are some examples that you like that are already doing this sort of thing? So I know Join Market and Wasabi Wallet support this or are in the process of supporting it. And I think, although I could be wrong, that Electrum is in the process of but. I think also green wallets. Oh, yeah, that's right. And also, a thing to point out is the merchant has to adopt new software as well, and the BTC pay server project already supports this. To clarify, the way this is supported in BTC pay server is a checkbox that says enable P2EP, pay to endpoint, which is another name for pay join. And all you have to do is go in the settings of your store and just check that box. And for all customers whose wallets do not know how to do PayJoin, they will see this as simply a Bitcoin address. But for those wallets that do know, the QR code that they decode at checkout will have some additional information that says we can do this with a PayJoin and we'll then be able to execute that sequence. Yeah, so that's quite nice. And that means customers who don't have a wallet which supports this can still pay their merchants as normal. So it sounds like this technology is actually pretty available right now. Maybe it's not in everything. Kind of what do you see as the trajectory for this? When should we expect to see it in, you know, exchanges and places like that? <laughs> well, an interesting thing about this is because they're invisible, because these pay joins look the same as every other transaction, we don't know actually how adopted it is. Like in theory, it's possible that 90% of all transactions are actually pay joins. So like someone could make that claim and it'll be quite difficult to find evidence against it, if you see what I mean. As for when exchanges would adopt it, one interesting thing about PayJoin is that the kind of the threat model, the way the privacy works there is that it's the merchant and the customer who together protect both their privacies and their threat is a third party, is someone who just passively spies on the blockchain. Now, the thing of exchanges is, in a sense, there are already people spying on you. So if you do a PayJoin with an exchange, 
you won't get much privacy because you know today the exchange is, is spying on you. They'll track your payments and they'll have your KYC information. So when will it appear on exchanges? I'm guessing probably not very soon. And if it does, it may not be as useful as if it appeared on other places like, I don't know, an example, an anonymous VPN, which takes Bitcoin for payment. It will be much more useful there. But you could still use it to send funds in crypto into an exchange, right? Yeah, but in this example, the exchange could contribute one of the inputs, but they'll know the input is theirs, so they can subtract it from their analysis and probably like tell that information to their surveillance company, who then can subtract it. So you don't get the benefit of breaking the heuristics that the surveillance company uses. It's almost as if the exchanges are their surveillance companies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. And they are, and they partner with them. I'd like to throw in just one other idea so that people can see the broader picture here which is that when we say customer and merchant, kind of there's an asymmetry there. But of course, this is completely peer-to-peer and it can work both ways. Here's another example of how this might work. Let's say you have a wallet that supports this for receiving as well as sending. Now, imagine that you go to a Bitcoin ATM and you put in $20 worth of cash into that Bitcoin ATM and then you receive $40 worth of Bitcoin to your wallet 20 of which you put in as a second input in that transaction. In which case, at that point, the ATM is pay joining with you and you're throwing in an extra input acting as Adam, the merchant in our previous example, but now it's reversed. So you could do this on the receiving end of wallets too. And that becomes a very powerful two-way system. And another example is if there's two people who are trading Bitcoins for cash in person, that's much more peer-to-peer. They're people. It's not like one is a big merchant institution. And we still there use the terminology of customer and merchant. So that's a good thing to clear up. It doesn't literally mean a merchant in the way most people understand it. So this isn't just a technology that we're going to see used with, you know, kind of the checkout or e-commerce experience. This is something that really does impact peer-to-peer payments as well. From where we are right now with the technology, where does it need to go to really start making an impact in terms of privacy? I know that you said we can't actually tell how many transactions are being done with this because they don't stand out. But I mean, the wallets that you mentioned, it's not that they're small wallets, but there are certainly many larger wallets out there at this point. So like, is there a density that we need to have for it to start making a difference at a systemic level? Or do you have any sort of like uh, end goals or things that you'd like to see this achieve? I think for breaking these heuristics, you probably don't need very much. So for example, if only 5% of transactions were actually pay joins, and importantly, if those transactions were more or less equally spread throughout the Bitcoin economy. So for example, VPN users use it, Bitcoin casino users use it, Bitcoin ATMs use it. And if it's roughly evenly spread like that, then I think you don't even need that high of a percentage, like 5% or so, to break the heuristic that chain surveillance companies use. So for the next step could be to try and get this adopted by lots of different people, like lots of different kinds of users of Bitcoin. And this goes back to the fact that these heuristics are probabilistic. And all you have to do is lower the probability of getting accurate results just a tiny bit. And those results go from useful to garbage very, very quickly. There's almost like a threshold where it no longer makes sense to rely on them in any way. And it's not that high, that threshold. Yeah, that actually sounds, frankly, very promising. You know, a lot of times we talk to people about these sorts of technologies, not just privacy, but just in general sort of things that we hope to change or improve about cryptocurrency. 
And, you know, there's like a three-step plan that requires protocol-level new integrations, and that's going to take years. And then you've got like the adoption curve, and you need like some significant percentage of people to use it. This sounds like actually it's very achievable and basically already here. Is that correct? Yeah, that's not too far from the truth. This might be a little bit off topic, but I'm just wondering, is there even any kind of accountability for the surveillance companies if they get it wrong? You know, and if they tell an exchange to block a transaction or something like that, what happens then? And how do we even know if their data is already flawed in some way? We know it's flawed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But how do we know? Like, what happens when they get it wrong? I haven't experienced this myself, but if they block someone, like if an exchange closes your account, I'm pretty sure there's nothing you can really do. But it may be interesting. I spoke to someone at a Bitcoin meetup who is involved in law, and he was reading some legal reports where there were some actual court cases where a Bitcoin user, like they were, the surveillance company reports were users' evidence. So they said this PDF from a surveillance company says that the user sent transactions from A to B. And there was no detail in that. There was no, it was just the PDF said this. So you could expect maybe in a court of law that there could be accountability because the defense lawyer could just say, okay, well, this algorithm is actually based on a heuristic and it's not completely correct. And the surveillance company there would then have to justify and say, you know, they'd somehow justify it, which they couldn't because we know their heuristics are flawed. So the only accountability I could see is in a court of law in that situation. And today, I think if an exchange closes your account, there's nothing you can do as far as I know. When it comes to most of those things, it really obviously depends on which country you're in. And of course, the problems with privacy are worse in the countries where the rule of law is routinely flouted and where those who have the political and financial connections can get away with egregious violations of, of your liberties. And I don't think that we're in a very good place with that. I would argue that, for example, in the US, between the various asset forfeiture laws and the overall attitude that's given towards financial services companies, you really have very little due process and all of the burden is on you. So if it's about whether your account was frozen on an exchange, you don't really have any recourse for that. And that's why we shouldn't be leaving money on exchanges. But the more practical implications, however, are that if you make it impossible for these companies to provide useful services, then perhaps you start chipping away at their fantastic shareholder returns. And that might be a much more effective mechanism to reduce the amount of surveillance or the usefulness of surveillance across the board than legal process. So, Chris, we're almost out of time. So we've talked about PayJoin here. Can you just talk briefly, like, what are other privacy technologies that you think are important or think that we should be paying too attention to on this show? Or, you know, maybe that the audience who is interested in this sort of thing would be interested in investigating on their own. Besides PayJoin, kind of what else is out there that you find interesting? So there's a protocol that I'm working on these days, which is, it's called CoinSwap. So if you remember how PayJoin breaks the common input ownership heuristic, CoinSwap breaks the transaction graph heuristic. So that would mean if someone sees a transaction on the blockchain when money goes from A to B, they'd normally, it's almost an obvious assumption, they'd assume that money is being taken from A and given to B. Because a thing that CoinSwap can do is that money can end up in a completely different address in Z, somewhere else that's completely unrelated with no linkage on the blockchain. And those transactions could also be invisible, just like PayJoin. And you could get a similar effect where if only a small amount of use on the blockchain is coin swaps, it would 
break the heuristic that you can track coins going from A to B. And I think that it's not as mature as PayJoin, perhaps, but I think it could be another big win in the privacy space. CoinSwap sounds particularly interesting. I'm sure we'll have you back at some point in the not-too-distant future to talk to us about that as well. Chris, if people are interested in learning more about you or finding you on the internet, where should they go? I have a small website, bitcoinprivacy.me, or they could also follow my posts on Reddit of Belcher underscore, or I have a Twitter, which is Chris underscore Belcher underscore. And then for the developers in our audience, are there any of your projects, you know, I assume they're all open source, but are you looking for help with anything? Is there anything in particular that you're looking for? Yeah, so there's three projects right now. There's Join Market, Electron Personal Server, and CoinSwap. And they're all open source with free open source licenses, and they have different uses. So if developers, if they could look at that and find something that's useful to them, then start hacking on it. Like that's the way that open source works. We're going to get some links from you to include in the show notes. But Chris, I'd like to thank you very much on behalf of all the hosts for joining us today. This was a very good discussion, I think, on kind of the basics of privacy tech and then some of the projects you're working on specifically. We'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks for having me.